according to Wikipedia, Bernie Madoff founded a penny stock brokerage company back in 1960. He ultimately grew this to a large investment securities company that eventually became the sixth largest market maker in the S&P 500 stocks. There was a problem, though, with the asset management side of that business. You see, in the early 90s, Madoff began to create a massive Ponzi scheme, promising high returns with little risk to investors. And then he would use new investment money to pay gains for other investors. So the assets really were not increasing in value, but he made it look that way. He defrauded thousands of investors of billions of dollars while keeping a real low profile. How long did he think he could get away with this deceptive, dishonest, and illegal activity? Well, he was arrested in, in 2008, and he later pled guilty to 11 federal felonies. He admitted to creating the world's largest Ponzi scheme, the largest in history. He was sentenced to 150 years in prison. He died after serving 12 of those, died while in prison. The day of reckoning came for Bernie Madoff. We've been studying um, in this new series that we started in September, the divided kingdom. And we have been looking recently at Jeroboam as king of Israel, king of the northern kingdom since the kingdom has, has divided off. God graciously chose Jeroboam to be king but instructed him that he needed to be obedient to the Lord, uh, following him, doing the things that are right, worshiping him alone. And in our study recently, we have seen that Jeroboam has not been doing that. He has been practicing idolatry and, and in fact, not only doing it personally, but establishing it throughout the whole northern kingdom. He's getting all the people to do this. Because of his persistent idolatry and disregard for the, clear, the Lord's clear commands, his day of reckoning with the Lord is coming, as well as is actually for the whole northern kingdom. And we're going to be looking at that today in our text. I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 14. We will be looking at the first 20 verses. And we see here in the first four verses that Jeroboam seeks a positive prophecy for his sixth son. Verse 1. At that time, and that would be a reference likely uh, meaning that soon after the events covered in chapter 13. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Now, Abijah, that that name, now remember, this is Jeroboam's son. Jeroboam picked this name, and that name means Yah is my father. Yah being short for Yahweh. Like the Lord God of Israel is my father. It's not clear when Jeroboam would have selected that name to reflect 
the fact that God should be worshipped. That's the idea behind the name. But it's, it's strange. Jeroboam's heart did not belong to God. Why would he name his son that when it doesn't reflect what, who he is? He is his father. It's like some people, you know, it reminded me, it's like some people who today wear a cross or they show some other external symbol or association that's meant to convey some connection some interest in Christ. Folks, it doesn't matter if the things around you relate to Christ. What matters is if your heart belongs to Christ. And that was the case of Jeroboam. Doesn't matter what he named his son. His heart did not belong to the Lord. We see in verse 2 that he, he sends his wife in disguise to inquire from Ahijah the prophet. Remember his son is sick. Verse 2. Jeroboam said to his wife. Arise now and disguise yourself. So that they will not know. That you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold Ahijah the prophet is there. Who spoke concerning me. That I would be king over this people. Now Ahijah. We've seen him before. He was the prophet, you remember, who was sent, tore the garment into 12 pieces and and gave Jeroboam 10. That was all part of relaying to Jeroboam that he would be king. So we've seen Ahijah before. Now, we have some names that are real similar here. Abijah, Ahijah. (laughs) Abijah has a B. Let that remind you of the boy. That's... Jeroboam's son Abijah the boy Ahijah has an H think of honor for a prophet okay so that's your little mental cue as to which name goes with who now he sends his wife he says I want you to disguise yourself why the disguise why would he is is he trying to mislead the people is he trying to mislead the prophet maybe both Some commentators think that he was just trying to mislead the people uh, because he didn't want them to know that he was going to be inquiring of a prophet of uh, Yahweh. Others believe that he was misleading, trying to mislead the prophet. And I, I lean toward the latter since we'll see later in the text that God clearly reveals to Ahijah, the prophet that that Jeroboam's wife would be arriving and coming to him in disguise. So to me, that that's kind of the clue as to the meaning. But perhaps he was trying to deceive all the above. If this is the case where he's trying to deceive the prophet, then think about it. Jeroboam thinks that he can trick the prophet to give him a positive prophetic message and promise concerning his sick son. Jeroboam thinks that I can manipulate the situation. I can be in control of this um, and get the outcome that, that I want. And again, think of what we've studied. Jeroboam has seen amazing things. Remember with the withered hand and his hand, God did that. And then when uh, the prophet prayed his hand became healed 
Jeroboam has seen the, the work of the Lord. But despite all of that, he's trying to take matters into his own, own hands. But we're going to see very quickly God has everything under total control. Given his idolatrous ways, it's also possible that that Jeroboam thought, okay, if if the prophet knows that this is my son, the message could be bad for my son. So I'm, I'm trying to just conceal that, make this appear as some common person, the son of a common person, and maybe he'll pray to the Lord for his healing. In verses three and four, we uh Taking humble gifts with her, she comes to the prophet's house. Verse 3, Jeroboam tells his wife, Take ten loaves with you, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. Now, what he's describing here would reflect things uh, that would be carried by a common person, not royalty. So again, that's perhaps part of the disguise it's also something maybe as a bride to give to the prophet. I have some gifts for you. I'm expecting a very positive message in return. Verse 4, Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see for his eyes were dim because of his age. So he's, he's up in years. He really can't. See well, uh, it means his eyes are dim and hard to recognize people and so on. Now Shiloh is a town where the central sanctuary and Ark of the T Covenant had previously been located before uh, all of that went to Jerusalem. So you remember Shiloh. In verses 5 to 16, we see that Ahijah instead delivers harsh prophecies of judgment from God. They're, they're wanting a, a positive message about the sixth son, but instead Ahijah delivers some very harsh prophecies to them. And we see beginning there in verses 5 and 6 that the Lord reveals to the prophet her deception and all that he is to tell her. Verse 5 now the Lord had said to Ahijah, the prophet, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. You shall say thus and thus to her, for it will be when she arrives that she will pretend to be another woman. So God tells Ahijah exactly what's about to happen. Who's coming, the fact that she is trying to conceal her identity and that of obviously of her husband and and also why she's coming. The Lord tells Ahijah that. He also tells the prophet exactly what he is to say to her. It's always like that with a true prophet in the Old Testament. God tells them exactly what they are to say and a true prophet communicates exactly what God has said. Now, it says, you shall say thus and thus. That's not literally, I mean, <laughs> you fill in the blank. And we're going to see that message come out 
in the story all that the Lord uh, revealed for him to say. Now it says, verse 6, when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet coming in the doorway, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another woman? For I am sent to you with a harsh, harsh message. You can imagine the shock of Jeroboam's wife when she, she enters in. She hasn't even said anything. He hasn't even seen her. And he immediately identifies her, talks about her deception, and says, you have come to me, in essence, you've come to me to receive a message. I have been sent by God to give you a message. Ahijah doesn't waste time. He gets straight to the point. Uh, what would be the, the point of, of saying this right up front? But rather than just sitting back, letting her do her spiel, I mean, it, it communicates something, right? It gets her attention and it authenticates him as a prophet and the message that he's about to give her. This has her attention without question because of what he has said. Jeroboam sent his wife to the prophet to receive a message. Here, Ahijah the prophet tells her he has been sent by God to give her what? A harsh message that is to be delivered to Jeroboam. And then verses 7 to 14, we see that the prophet announces God's judgment on Jeroboam and his dynasty. And this begins with, in verses 7 and 8, that despite being exalted to his position by God, he did not obey the Lord. Verse 7, Go say to Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of God and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do what that which was right in my sight. Despite God's gracious action toward Jeroboam, Jeroboam didn't choose to be king. He couldn't have done that. God chose him to be king of this divided northern kingdom. But despite what God had done and had graciously allowed him to assume that position, Jeroboam didn't do what God commanded him to do when Ahijah the prophet came to him and, and told him that he would be king. God told him then, and we looked at this back in chapter 11, God told him then to do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments. Instead, Jer Jeroboam established this settled disposition in his heart of not doing that which was right in God's sight. And verse 9 tells us... He, he did even more evil than all those who were before him because of his idolatry. Verse 9. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods 
and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Instead of doing what God said, it says Jeroboam did more evil than all who were before him. That would be Saul, who was not good. It would be David. Now, David, in an ultimate sense, had a heart after the Lord. He, he sinned, and he sinned big time. He messed up, but he, he had a heart that was repentant, and he w- became right before the Lord. And then this would certainly include Solomon. And we've looked at Solomon. Solomon messed up big time. Uh, hugely blessed of God, but he blew it in some very big ways. So this message to Jeroboam is, you have done more evil than all who were before you. The NIV study Bible, I don't normally use the NIV, but it has excellent notes, by the way, on the Old Testament. It says he implemented a paganized system of worship for the entire populace of the northern kingdom. So again, this wasn't just something, a personal sin of Jeroboam. He led the whole northern kingdom to practice this. He led them away from the Lord. We studied the root of Jeroboam's sin back in chapter 12. Uh, Given the, the break off of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam reasoned, we looked at it again back in chapter 12, Jeroboam reasoned that if he let the people go back to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to God, that the heart of the people would return to the house of David over time. So he, was, he felt like he needed tight control over the people. He didn't want them going to Jerusalem to offer proper sacrifices and worship God properly. So he created two golden calves. He picked his own priest, you know, contrary to, God, to God's standards, and he established pagan worship practices in, in place of worshiping the true God of Israel. And again, the people fully followed him. The verse there says that you cast me behind your back. That's, that's what Jeroboam did to God. It, it reflects this attitude of utterly despising God. And, and folks, haven't you seen people today, and you can reflect on your own life, how people today cast God behind their back. Get behind me. I, I have other things. I, don't, I have disregard for you and, and anything that you have to say. That's the idea. In verses 10 to 11, we see uh, from this the message, Therefore, God will bring disaster on his house and end his dynasty. Verse 10, Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity, I'm bringing disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel. Because of Jeroboam's wickedness, God is going to remove his descendants from the throne. His dynasty is going to come to an end. And in addition, God is going to bring severe judgment on his entire house. Continuing there, 
Verse 10, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. Verse 11, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. For the Lord has spoken. This is language. This is imagery connected to the judgment of God. Uh, and this, this would have been known to Jeroboam. Judgment is coming. Severe judgment. God also here makes a reference to the curses that he gave to the people through Moses. Going back to you know hundreds of years back before the people came into the promised land. You remember in, in Deuteronomy 28, that's a chapter of where Moses, God through Moses, is giving the people a list of blessings if you obey me and a list of curses if you don't obey me as you come into this new land. And Deuteronomy 28, 26 says, your carcasses, this is part of the curses, if you don't, where God says, if you don't do what, I tell you to do and obey my commandments. He says, your carcasses will be food to the bir- to all birds of the sky and to the beast of the, the earth. And there will be no one to frighten them away. So again, God here in this judgment to Jeroboam is, is pulling from going back to the, the curse that was given back in Deuteronomy chapter 28 by, through Moses. He's saying here Jeroboam's family would not have honorable burials, which, which everyone would want, but would, they would be disgraced as part of God's judgment. Commentators Patterson and Austell write that Ahijah's prophetic threats are presented under the, under the figures of defilement and detested images emphasizes the heinousness of Jeroboam's religion, religious and awful judgment that results from such practices. Vicious sins begets vigorous judgment. And then in verses 12 and 13, we see that the message, the child will die when Jeroboam's wife returns home. Verse 12. Now you, speaking to Jeroboam's wife, now you arise, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child will die. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, referring to Abijah, the son. For he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Now he, this, this phrase here, child, it's difficult to know the age of this son. That same word is used of Rehoboam's young advisors. So, I mean, they could be later teenage years, maybe later. It, it's not clear. Don't, don't think of a, a really young child. We just don't know. Abijah was possibly next in line to be king. 
We don't know if he was the firstborn son of Jeroboam or not. But certainly he was loved by the people. And it says here that they will mourn for him. And it also says that only Abijah, he alone of Jeroboam's family, will come to the grave. He is the only one who's going to receive an honorable burial. It says, because in him, something good was found toward the Lord. So he had reached a point of maturity and, and personal decision where he was doing things that were pleasing to the Lord. That's the idea here. He would have certainly uh, gone off from the ways of Jeroboam, the ways of the rest of his family, and the ways of the rest of the northern kingdom. By the way, some commentators point out here, they, they see this as an act of God's mercy in, in allowing the child to die, uh, actually in an honorable way, given the judgment that's coming upon the entire house of Jeroboam. But we, we just trust those details to the Lord as to why he, he allowed this child that, in, that the Lord saw something good in, allowed him to die. Well, in, in verse 14, we see that uh, the message, a new king will cut off the house of Jeroboam. Verse 14, moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. Not this day as in the day that this prophecy is given, but the day that this cutting off occurs. It's, it's going to, uh, Jeroboam's family line, it will cease. But the prophecy is as good as done. That's just the way the word of the Lord is. This is a prophecy that the Lord will raise up someone to be king over Israel who will totally wipe out Jeroboam's household. Now, I want to show you a timeline of the northern kingdom and I'll be using this as we go through the kings of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom it just you guys who've been around you know I'm visual and I just I like to see things like this it's helpful to me so here's the timeline for when Jeroboam was king he was the first king in the northern kingdom this was the period of his reign not his lifetime and we're going to see that after he died, his son Nadab became king. Now, keep in mind, you say, wait a minute. The prophecy just said his line, his dynasty is going to be cut off. It doesn't say when. Okay, so the fact that Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, be became king after Jeroboam doesn't negate the prophecy. Uh, the prophecy looks beyond that time period. As we're going to see when we study chapter 15, after Nadab had been king for only two years, the following took place. In 1 Kings 15, 27, then Basha conspired against him, referring to Nadab, and Basha struck him down at Gibbethon. So Basha killed him and reigned in his place. Nadab was murdered. He was assassinated as the king. And so 
Uh, yeah, and then Basha became king after Nadab. So what we see, well, and then it, it gets worse. Uh, in 1 Kings fifteen twenty nine. look at what happens next. It came about as soon as he, Basha, was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah, the Shilonite. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and which he made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. All of this happened just as Ahijah the prophet prophesied. Just two years after the death of Jeroboam, his family is wiped out. His dynasty is over. His family is gone. No descendants. Their, their history happened exactly as the Lord said. And you know it reminds me of Hebrews 10, 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, and this quotes back from the Old Testament. The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We know God is patient. God is merciful. Um, but he is also just. And there's a time when his anger is invoked uh, against, in particular, a settled disposition of the heart. His judgment is sure and and it is complete. Well, next we see in verses 15 and 16, the prophet announces God's judgment on Israel. So we're going back to when Ahijah the prophet is still speaking to Jeroboam's wife. So take your mind back there. And he says, beginning in verse 15, that God will strike Israel, causing much instability. Verse 15, for the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. Uh, the idea, I mean, you can imagine tall grass, reeds, you know, growing in the water, the winds whipping them around. Does that provide any, any kind of foundational, stable foundation to build something on? No, they're, they're totally uh, unstable. Well, let me show you how this prophecy was fulfilled. So going back to the timeline, this is a view of all the kings of the northern kingdom. And yes, there is some overlap in reigns because there were some kings they co-reigned reigned at the same time. We're going to work through all the details of this in our study. So you'll, you'll see this a lot. But look at, look at what happened. These are the kings that were killed the kings that were assassinated look how many there were the there was total instability from a from a royal perspective people raised up they killed the king and guess what it started new dynasties look at all of the new dynasties that started in the northern kingdom it's not like one dynasty that just continued on when someone was murdered, it, was, it reflected 
a person they wanted to start their own dynasty. So they arranged to kill the king, start their own dynasty, but guess what? A lot of the times, someone else came along and killed them or killed their son. So you see that this total instability, you know, at least royally, in terms of the, the throne and, and the crown. I also want you to see how the sins or the way of Jeroboam caused instability in, uh, well, in the overall nation, but also in the sense that it becomes this negative reference for evil. And I had never seen this before, but the reference to Jeroboam's ways, his, his evil ways, it becomes this way of summarizing the evil nature of all of these future kings. And real quickly, I'm going to show you this. You go through it one time and you'll just have it in your brain. But it, I'm just fascinated by this because this spans hundreds of years where these things uh, were said. In 1 Kings 14.26, Nadab, this would have been Jeroboam's son, did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father Jeroboam and in his sin which he made Israel sin. Basha did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in the sin which he made Israel sin. Zimri sinned walking in the way of Jeroboam. Omri walked in all the way of Jeroboam. Ahaziah did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. Jehoram clung to the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. As for the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. Jehoahaz did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the sins of Jeroboam. Jehoash did evil in the sight of the Lord. He, he did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam the second, no relation to Jeroboam the first, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. Zechariah, not the prophet, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam which he made Israel sin. Menahem did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam. Pekahiah did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. Pekah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. Look at Pekah's reign. I mean, this is uh, almost 200 years, not quite, after Jeroboam. But people are still talking about the standard of evil that Jeroboam established. And, and you see this almost every king, not entirely everyone, but you saw that. Almost, almost all the kings, they were given a summary statement that they did not depart from the evil ways of Jeroboam.
Well, next we see in the, the rest of verse 15 and verse 16 that God will uproot Israel and exile them from the land because of their idolatry. idolatry. Folks, this is a massive prophecy. Don't miss this. Massive. And here it is. We're looking at it. Uh, picking up in the middle of 15. So the prophet is again telling Jeroboam's wife this prophecy to give to Jeroboam. And he, God, will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River because they have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. He will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed and with which he made Israel to sin. Now, this is a prophecy that will be fulfilled next June. Well, I mean, next June, we're going to study the text <laughs> that shows its fulfillment. Uh, that's what I mean. By. Uh, here's, but here's the summary that, that we'll look at then. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Going back to our map, in 722 B.C., uh, in the reign of Hoshea, Israel fell. The northern kingdom ceased to exist. And this was all in fulfillment of what, what God said he would do. They fell to Assyria and they went into exile. This happened about 200 years after the prophecy had been given. And it happened exactly as God said. Look at the map. Here's Assyria. And in relation to Israel, what is it on the other side of? The Euphrates River. He said, I'm going to send you beyond the Euphrates. That's, that was the prophecy. It was perfectly fulfilled. What is the reason behind the judgment? Well, it, it was idolatry. And it was not some temporary kind of idolatry where there was repentance, restoration, and so on. And God can see the heart. He knows the heart of every person. This was a settled disposition to worship pagan deities, pagan idols. And it says here in the text, it, it mentions the ashram. Israel's worship of these idols was summarized here in this reference to making of, of ashram or Asherah poles. These would be wooden shafts carved to pr promote the worship of the Canaanite goddess Asherah. Doesn't mean that was the only thing that was worshipped, but it, it's representative of that. They were sold out to worshipping other things 
these man-made objects as opposed to the one true and living God. And God pronounces judgment. Well, in verses 17 and 18, we see the prophecy concerning the sick boy is fulfilled. Look at verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. Now think about it. If you were Jeroboam's wife and you had just been told a prophecy that when you go back into the city, your son's going to die, what would you do? I think I'd find another place to live. So the fact that she went back says what? She didn't believe it. So you can, you can see. I mean, despite the prophet knowing who she was, seeing her disguise, her motive, and, and all of that, uh, didn't change her heart. Her heart was, was hardened. And I think the fact that she went back home just, again, reiterates that. Jeroboam apparently had moved his royal court to Tirzah. Um... By the way, Tirzah was a beautiful place. And sorry to insert a little bit of humor here, but when we studied the Song of Solomon, Tirzah was mentioned by Solomon as a beautiful place. And in Solomon, sorry, Song of Solomon 6.4, Solomon said to his, at that point in the, the text, his wife, he said to her, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling. So men, for your next Valentine card or anniversary card, there's your opening line. You are as beautiful as Tirza, my darling. There you go. Let me know how that works out for you. Okay. I'll be interested in the feedback on that. Okay. Sorry to insert that and go to something uh, serious, but look at verse, uh, continuing there in verse 17, and as she was entering the threshold of the house, the child died. The death of this child, Abijah, happened according to what the prophet had revealed, what God had told the prophet. Signifying, by the way, that's the way God does these things. He gives a little bit of prophecy that's fulfilled. It authenticates the prophet and the message. And it's meant to show the future things yet unfulfilled are definitely going to happen. Just as these near-term things happen, so are the longer-range things just as assuredly going to happen. Well, we see in uh, yeah, verse 17, when the wife returns home, the child dies. And then in verse 18, we see that he was properly buried and mourned over. Verse 18, all Israel buried him and, and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. I mean, even, even this happened exactly the way God said. Notice how the people mourned at his death. They they also honored him with a proper burial. And as was prophesied, he was the only one of Jeroboam's family to receive an honorable burial. I don't know about Jeroboam himself. That's really not in the text. But in terms of his, his household, 
this was the only descendant who received an honorable burial. It's possible that the people are mourning because they're seeing the prophet's words come true. And no doubt the wife has communicated you know, to Jeroboam, perhaps to others, what this prophet said. And they're mourning because they're seeing things unfold exactly as he said. They know what's in store in the future. Well, Jeroboam dies after reigning for 22 years, the years 931 to 910 B.C. We see this in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. The time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. This reference to the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel is a reference to what? No. <laughs> it's not a reference to First and Second Chronicles in Scripture. It, it seems like it would. But uh, First and Second Chronicles discuss only David and the kings of Judah. Instead, this is a reference to historical documents that would be outside of, of Scripture. They're historical, you know, uh, yeah, just history documents, none of which survive to this day. And by the way, uh, of as we go through First and Second Kings, the reigns of eighteen of the twenty kings of Israel are said to have been recorded in the Book of the Chronicles. Reference to the same thing. Uh, a similar thing is said regarding the the kings of Israel. So these are just diaries, historical diaries that were kept that are outside of, of Scripture that people would have, would have known about. Well, that's the end of our text. Let's look at some reflections. And you know, the first thing that, that sticks out to me is do what God says or you will deal with the consequences. And that, that's just the obvious message that comes out from this text. Jeroboam had been instructed, he had been warned, but he refused to do what God said. And the same principle applies today. We are, we're obviously thankful to God for his patience, for his forgiveness in Christ, but the principle remains that there are, there are consequences for having a settled disposition towards sin in one's heart. So we need to, to obey or deal with the consequences. Secondly, God means what he says. And he does exactly what he says he will do. I mean, doesn't our text show that? And we see this throughout Scripture. God always means what he says. Now granted, there can be conditions tied to, to what's said, whether the conditions are met. So there can be variables about ultimate outcomes. But he, God, God knows everything. He means what he said, says. And folks, God doesn't bluff. He doesn't bluff. Everything God says is true. When God's, God says something will happen in the future, just like we saw in our text, and looking at the rest of, of Scripture and how that unfolds, 
It happens exactly as he said that it would. Let this give you and me confidence and compel us to trust and obey all that God says in, in his word. God's word is trustworthy. It's true. Everything he says is true and we, we build our lives on it. It's, it's based on God's integrity. And the unfolding of, of his testimony shows everything that he says truly comes about. And then finally, idolatry is a serious sin that ultimately provokes God's anger and brings divine judgment. Our text clearly shows this. It's, it's the ultimate testimony of the northern kingdom, which, folks, no longer exists. God wiped it out. Granted, some of the people may have come back and uh, over time, but as a some organized entity, it's gone. Jeroboam and the people of Israel, they had this settled disposition of the heart toward idolatry, toward worshiping man-made things rather than the one true God. And God knew it wasn't going to end, and so he brought, he pronounced judgment. As I think, you know, just about how we personalize this, we need to identify and abandon idols of the heart. Let me ask you, are you worshiping other gods besides the one true and living God? Now, people today, by and large, especially in the Western world, we don't build an idol and create a shrine and put it up in our house, make something out of wood. We mentally, rationally, we've kind of gone beyond that reasoning there's no way that I can make something that is worthy of worship that doesn't make sense instead we have far more sophisticated idols don't we far more sophisticated we find other things to occupy our affections you know John Calvin said the the heart is an idol what factory it just produces one after another things that we attach ourselves to that that we think bring purpose bring fulfillment bring happiness and we we connect our energy our actions our words our thoughts to those things and we bind ourselves to them and granted we're not in a position of bowing down and and worshiping but the attitude and the actions of our heart and lives show we are worshiping those things. So even as, as believers, we need to recognize that we can sin. We can have idols that come in and even lesser items than worshiping the ultimate you know, God who we're redeemed to worship and, and our redeemed heart truly loves. That is the real us. But our flesh, our sinful affections can get in the way and we can there can be other idols that come and and grab our attention our affections for believers we need to praise the lord that christ bore god's wrath on the cross that was meant for us you know we 
we all are deserving of the kind of judgment that we've read about. And for those who are not in Christ, for those who are themselves responsible for their own sin, there is a very harsh judgment coming that, that God will bring to bear upon you. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have received the forgiveness and grace that come through him, God's wrath we don't have to take. What the wrath meant for us was put on Christ on the cross and him being our substitute. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift of complete forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me let that remind be a reminder of the Lord's gracious work in your life and and cause all of us to to look at the things that that can distract us that can become some type of temporary idol and identify those put those aside and truly devote our hearts ever more fully fully to the Lord let's pray father we thank you Lord for this text that reminds us of the truthfulness of your word the fact that you see the the end from the beginning everything you say is a hundred percent true it always happens exactly as you say Lord may that remind us to love your word your written word and to have confidence in it to obey it to base our decisions and our the affections of our hearts upon it and Lord we do pray that uh, if there's someone here who who truly is not in Christ that they would recognize that they worship other things besides you they could worship self and other pursuits but they instead need to turn and worship the one true and living God and receive the offer of forgiveness of all sins past present and future through his son the Lord Jesus Christ and and his work as our substitute uh, taking on the punishment of our sins living a perfect life that is then credited to those who become his Lord we thank you for such for your great salvation and we pray that for those of us here who are your people that we would be ever more committed to recognizing the things that draw our attention away from fully worshiping you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.